That's Herb Albert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome to the program Baseball Prospectus's Director of Editorial Content and one of the co-editors of the 2019 Baseball Prospectus Annual, Patrick Dubuque, as we engage in a search for the moral center of baseball. Patrick and I will discuss the best way to ethically cover baseball transactions in this broader moment of labor rancor, how we have found the offseason, where it has met and exceeded our expectations or failed to meet them as it were, what we might best expect of or perhaps ask of baseball ownership, and then answer the burning question we have all wondered about, what are our greatest editorial pet peeves? We couldn't have Patrick on without a little bit of editor talk. That is all coming up. But first, it is my professional obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the cost of two scoops of very good ice cream on a hot summer's day, you can support the wonderful work at Fangraphs, including Jeff Sullivan and Craig Edwards' assessments of what few transactions the offseason has given us, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel's industry-leading prospect coverage, and Dan Zimborski's Zips projections, which are rolling out now. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, thus facilitating faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Patrick Dubuque, resident philosopher of Baseball Prospectus, which begins right now. So I've started recording now. This is when we do the banter part. Yeah, we do a little bit of banter. I mean, I was I was very upset that Ben and Sam and Jeff, Ben and Sam. uh, Okay, (laughs) going way back. Dylan, go ahead and start recording now. Uh, I was I was mad he didn't use, and now I am literally just talking to Dylan because he's the only other person who heard this. Dylan, disappointed that you didn't like snip my my banter from the last podcast in because I thought that was. A plus material. It had no <laughs> baseball relation whatsoever, but it was it was solid stuff. Well, I mean, no no relation to baseball is is part of the Fangraphs audio canon. You're you're welcome here. You're among friends. I'm saying this because now we're just leaving all of this in. So yeah, of course. You know. Although we we do talk a fair amount of baseball now, probably more than in in some times in the <laughs> you know in some phases. Some developmental phases of this podcast history. More the podcast that I spent with with Carson, where we talked about Heraclitus for an hour. <laughs> I mean, we'll we'll see where this goes. <laughs> it's not it's not outside the realm of possibility. Patrick, you're Patrick. You're Hi. Patrick Dubuque. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Hi, Meg. Good. How are you? Thanks for inviting me. Oh, thanks for for hanging out. It's a funny thing to have people who uh, are your in real life friends on the podcast, people you know both personally and professionally, because uh, you know there's there's stuff that you you just talk about freely among friends, and then you have to put on your your podcast voice and podcast pants i guess and be a little more circumspect but hopefully not too much more because people like the dirt they like the gas i need a better podcast voice i need to something like maybe like a a british accent or something you have you have a a a very nice resonant uh baritone though i i think you're doing fine well it's it's because i read so many children's stories with my my kids like i've developed (laughs) this this cavalcade of of different voices that i have to use for each character and i've got like 40 or 50 of them now and you know it's it, it's actually like i get to the narration part and i feel bad because i have to talk in my normal voice as opposed to the uh 
The frog and toad voice. The frog and toad voices have been honed. Like we've done that those books so often. How many of the storybook voices do you then use when interacting with your writers at Baseball Prospectus? Well, zero. Like it it is something that is completely (laughs) separate from every other element of my life. Like I've never, I don't, I don't think I've ever used another voice in any other circumstance. It's kind of, it, it might be actually bordering on psychosis. How I have this little separate personality just for frog and toad that sounds that sounds somewhat consistent with what parenting just is though right pretty much yeah yeah <laughs> you, you you compartmentalize there's the seven to eight patrick and then there's the four to five patrick they are very different people with very different priorities sure patrick how have you found this off season how's it treated you how's well, this winter been uh it, it's been fine i yeah. i have not really paid attention to very much of it <laughs> i've been <laughs> editing a book that you uh participated in you i did Washington Nationals essay for uh, the Baseball Prospectus Annual, and and I edited it, and I edited many others, and it's coming out. People should order it. It's available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Uh, also, probably at your local independent bookstores, which you know you might make a a moral choice to patronize instead of some other online denizens. But uh, yeah, people should buy the annual. I feel like my essay in the annual is very high stakes in terms of its relevance. It'll go one direction very sharply. uh, And we probably won't know before the book ships. So that's terrific. Well, the nice thing is you've only got about a week. I think it's coming out in like 10 days now. We never know the exact date of when it appears. It just appears. But the clock's running out. Anything bad happening to you? That's true. It's I mean, I, good. I had to take I had to take a position when writing this essay on what Bryce Harper would do because you can't write about the the Nationals and their future direction without acknowledging this you know looming departure, which is the analysis I ended up going with, right? The direction I assumed, and you know because I I turned it in just hilariously late. I promise it was not an attempted murder. You know, I knew that the Patrick Corbin had been signed by the Nationals, and it just, you know, just seemed unlikely that Bryce Harper would end up back in D.C., but I feel uh, less confident about that by the day. And so I guess it'll just be a nice little time capsule for people if he signs back in D.C. and returns to our nation's capital that, like, you know, this is what one analyst thought about uh, a guy for a minute, and then she was wrong. Well, we're all trapped in moments, you know, all the time. It's it's kind of ironic that, that, however, as everyone else, every other sports writer in the country complains about the lack of activity. For us, for we editors of mm-hmm. the annual, every day without a transaction is, is a little piece of heaven. Sure. <laughs> less we have to change, less we have to worry about. I was I was rooting for the, the teams to just all turn off their phones and just wait. I was good with it. Yeah, I can't say that um you know, I'm I'm of two minds on this because you know, I run I run a baseball website that publishes every day and it's just easier for people to write about baseball when there's, you know, stuff happening. Uh especially in January, which is just like a hard time of year to exist as a human person. Uh, let alone be writing about baseball with no transaction activity. So like on the one hand, I want there to be activity for my own personal benefit and also so that some baseball players can can make money that they are due. But I can't say that I uh, had particularly fond uh, feelings to send the way of, say, the Dodgers or the Reds uh, or 
you know, the, the Oakland A's or the Texas Rangers or whoever the hell the third team in that, uh, Friday before Christmas avalanche of activity was. Cause you just don't want to be editing at 4.30 the Friday before Christmas. You're like really ready to be done and eat one more cookie than is advisable. And I, uh, I had to sit there and, and edit and, you know, and our writers had to write. So everyone was inconvenienced. It wasn't just me, but. Uh, it wasn't that wasn't the best, but here we are. Yeah, it's nice for BP since we're more we're not quite as close to the actual breaking of news as we are the analysis. So, you know, we can anal- we can analyze that transaction day after Christmas. It's it's cool. Yeah, like, yeah. But then you know, people they want to know what we have to say about Domingo Santana. They can't go to Christmas without that. They'd feel left out. They'd feel incomplete. Checking their phones. Perhaps he'd be teaching them to live in the present by yeah. denying them. It may, maybe the moral thing is to keep them from having what they want. Yeah, I don't know that Jerry Depoto subscribes to that particular understanding of moral philosophy, but I think it's a laudable goal. I had to pick up a, a pie to take with me uh, to go to our family Christmas in the mountains. Uh, I had reserved a pie at a local bakery because I was realistic about how much time I would have to bake a pie. And so it felt like a defeat in a way that I, you know, surrendered to this. And then I missed my pickup window and the bakery called me because it's like, they're going to give away this pie, you know, if I don't come and get it. And I said to the guy on the other end of the phone who was being very nice and doing his job that it's not my fault. I'll be there soon. Baseball happened. And then I hung up abruptly and I was like, hmm. They might have the cops waiting for me when I get to this bougie bakery in North Seattle. So I was a little nervous about that, but it ended up being fine. You know, understanding that these are this is a livelihood for people. It feels like in our modern society, pie is one element that should not have stress attached to it. Right. <laughs> I feel like the entire pie world should be a little more relaxed. Well, and I, else. yeah, and I'm not a, I'm not particularly keen on sweets generally. Like I, I don't crave them. Although at cri- around you know holidays and such, I, I guess I indulge more than I would at any other time of year. But I really enjoy pecan pie. It's one of my favorite things. I like eating it. I like eating it with the holidays, you know, with some whipped cream. And so like the idea that Jerry Depoto was going to prevent me from getting this pie made me want to burn Mariner's memorabilia I own. It ended up being fine, so I was being a little bit dramatic. But the pie is a ritual. The pie isn't actually a pie. It's a symbol. And therefore, three or four more years of Jerry DePoto, and that will be the ritual. And then when he's gone, and no, he'll he'll be GM forever because he'll be successful and and happy in his career. (laughs) But if that's not the case, then there will be some piece of you missing the first time that you do get to eat that pie. Right. Right. That's tragic. Yeah. I wonder if... Perhaps missing from your argument around the morality of modern transaction analysis was the pie component. I wonder if that might have been a, a piece that was missing that we should have incorporated there. There's always another layer. Yeah. I mean, like certain types of pies. I'm not like, doing like pies. some pies. Cakes more. It would have been a more apt metaphor. Well, I guess like a key lime pie has layers in a way. Uh, I guess it depends on what you mean by a layer, right? Like outer crust is a layer. That's a layer. It's more like a draft. <laughs> uh, Patrick, one of the reasons I wanted you to come on this podcast, in addition to the pie takes, I know that you've already discussed in some detail with 
Ben Lindbergh and Jeff Sullivan, the piece that you wrote for Baseball Prospectus about you know, what players make and how we write about what players make and whether we ought to write about what players make in specific monetary detail. But I am a trained political theorist, and you are too, really. And so I thought I wanted to have you on so that we could talk about some of these thorny moral questions because the offseason's been so boring and slow and has uh, brought up for all of us, I think, the reality that we are likely to encounter a work stoppage at some point. But more sort of immediately before that seeming inevitability rolls around is that we as as an industry of writers and then as a community of people who like baseball probably need to think uh, pretty critically about how we talk about the sport from a labor perspective and a transaction perspective. And I, you know, having published several pieces at Fangraphs, since that piece came out that did include financial terms, think that we have adopted and continue to have a slightly different editorial stance. But I think the questions are worthwhile because I've noticed, and you tell me if you've also noticed this, that we spend a lot of time as an industry and a commentariat, that's a word, talking about how the union failed in the last CBA. And we're very quick to place blame there, right? Like you you did a bad job. You did a bad job. You didn't negotiate well. But we don't seem to be giving ownership credit for getting exactly what they want. Like when we think about what baseball is now, we think about like this fractured, horrible labor situation. But like they failed, but ownership succeeded. And this is pretty much what they wanted. So shouldn't we be madder about that? I mean, I think everybody can be as mad as they want to be. That's very diplomatic of you. I think so, too. One of the things that I find interesting about how the owners did this is that one of the ways that the players have always had an advantage of the owners and one of the ways that owners have always had an advantage over players in different circumstances is is essentially the prisoner's dilemma. Mm -hmm. And that when it comes to negotiating, teams forever could just basically put each player and lock them in a room and negotiate with them separately and gave the player no real information, no real benefits of hindsight or of literally what was going on with the guy next door. And that way they could extract the most value out of their players because they could just say, well, you were good last year. Uh, we'll give you a $2,000 raise. Not you were better than this guy over there who he, he makes twice as much as you do. So until the mid seventies, that was pretty much how salaries happened. You had, you had the players that would get really upset and hold out for maybe, you know, part of spring. But that was kind of all they could do. And then since the 70s, especially since the 80s, what it was is that the, the owners had their own collective action problem where they all wanted to win and they all knew they wanted to spend less. And it would work fine if they could all get each other to spend less. Right. But one team or two teams, you know, oftentimes the Yankees, but certain teams would just not abide by that. They'd, they'd cheat, essentially, and they'd go ahead and sign people anyway. And therefore, the you know, they tried actual capital C collusion, and that didn't work because they got called on it. And then well, they did, tried it, other ways did, to encourage themselves. It did themselves. work, but... <laughs> it worked for a little bit. And then, they weren't very sneaky about it. No, yeah. They were bad criminals. They did they, bad crimes. It worked until it stopped working. Right. But basically, the, salary, the, the soft salary cap is essentially a, a way for the owners to signal to each other, okay, this time, we really are going to cooperate on this because if you don't it'll hurt more and right it actually worked and so the owners actually negotiated better against each other 
I think, than the players in the sense that they had the foresight to make this binding between them. Yeah, it does seem as if, you know, if we, and here I am, I'm going to focus on a a union failure um, against my sort of better judgment here, but it does seem like one of the union failures was being sort of unable or unwilling or not thinking to pit ownership against each other. You know, they sort of allowed this unified bargaining unit to come forward and and say, this is how we're going to look at baseball. I do think that we just really, some of it is we just really miss Mike Elich. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird thing that so much of that ecosystem might be dependent on one really rich, really old guy who just really wants to win a World Series and doesn't care what his hair looks like or how much money he has to spend to do it. Or isn't beholden to minor shareholders. Well, and that's the other thing. It's like, you know, I think that a weird thing happened, and this just isn't specific to baseball. I think this is true across sort of the, you know, the sort of big three. Well, I think that it's not specific to baseball. I don't know how universal it is, but it's not specific to baseball that we have this, you know, vision of sports owners as one person, first of all, like we tend to identify with a specific majority owner. And then I I think a lot of people think of, I don't know, like they think of Steve Ballmer, right? They think of someone who's willing to spend like billions of dollars on literally the Los Angeles Clippers and then sit courtside and be a maniac. But like most sports owners aren't that, like some of them really love baseball, but a lot of them are just like, you know, this is a, a very good investment. And so we don't actually have the like strange, eccentric, not necessarily sympathetic, but like deeply invested billionaire, uh, you know, on the sidelines or in the ownership suite necessarily. It's just, you know, a collection of LPs. Yeah. Some some of those owners aren't even human at all. They're just right. giant banks of computers and in, in under, <laughs> underneath the stadium. Right. And so you end up with this, you know, I think that part of it is that we will look at baseball and from a pure strategy and value perspective might say that like cash is weirdly undervalued in this moment, right? Where it's like prospects are really hard to grow. You know, baseball players are hard to make. Even really good ones fail a lot of the time. And so you would think that there would be perhaps not prospect hugging, but some amount more of covetedness. That's a hard word to say. You know, you'd think that they would hold them close a little bit more, but like baseball prospects are only good for playing baseball and cash can be spent on a lot of different things. And so I wonder if even if it's undervalued in a baseball context, it has tremendous value in non-baseball context. And so we just end up with, uh, you know, ownership groups that want to maximize franchise value and profitability, and they don't necessarily have to win in order to do either of those things. Yeah, I think that's the the latter part is the key. We talk about the failures of labor versus the cleverness of ownership. And I think in one case... It's not really either. It's just that the landscape changed in a way that was tremendously favorable to ownership. And I don't know how much we can credit ownership for that. It's just that the market is better for owners because there's just way more revenue streams. Right. And the players certainly, the players union certainly didn't climb on board early enough to try and hack up, hack their part out of a lot of those. But that would, that's hard. It's right. hard to try and predict that. Whereas the owners didn't have to predict it. They just kind of reaped it. Right. So like, you know, we're familiar with being very rich. <laughs> yeah, and then they just kind of had those things in place, and right. it was the the onus was on the players to try to constantly play defense on those. I think, and I can't really blame them for whiffing on it. Yeah, it's. 
I just think it's a very odd bit of, I just think it's a very odd way to, to sort of formulate it because we view the system, you know, we view this particular set of circumstances around the game as largely broken. And, you know, in part we view it that way because we're looking ahead to 2021 where it might be very broken, right, to the point of there not being baseball for a little while or a long while, depending on how long a labor stoppage lasts. But we're formulating that entirely in terms of a failure to protect rather than a success to diminish. And it's just a very strange, I I don't quite know how from a writing perspective we we ever flip that fully. Because I don't think it's just a matter of knowing that Bryce Harper makes, let's say he ends up making $300 million, preferably not with the Washington Nationals so as not to undo the wonderful (laughs) essay that I wrote. Uh, I wrote part of that essay on a tractor, dictated it into my phone. So a little bit of inside knowledge from me to you. And, and for you, me to you, surprisingly free of typos, given that information. <laughs> well, I did go back later because I am a, a shame-motivated person and a, a guilt-motivated person to a you know surprising degree for someone who is not Catholic uh, and knew that if you had to fix more than like five things in that essay that you might never speak to me again because it was so horribly late. So well, anyway. Uh, anyway, so I to go back way back to the beginning of the conversation about whether we should use dollars per war, and I think I feel like I didn't do a good enough job on this part, is to clarify that there's really two separate reasons for why I felt that way. The one is the moral argument that that we do have an effect on the negotiations that are taking place by talking about them. But the other one is this, that it, based on what is literally happening, whether we have effect on it or not, it doesn't, it's broken. We, we can't accurately describe using the tools we have always used what's happening now. You can't use dollars per war in a world where Nick Marcakis makes six million bucks. Yeah. Because the concept of dollars per war and what we're used to, it's like, it's like talking about batting average and saying that 230 is a bad hitter. Well, now it isn't. 230 is an average hitter these days. Right. The same thing is with dollars of war. You, we're used to that $8 million per win formula that we've all been using for shorthand for, you know, better part of a decade. The number kind of slowly climbed up for a long time. Now, using that same language is immediately going to put everybody on the wrong track because it's just not... It's not the case whether it should be or not. Right. I, I think I think where I get hung up is that that detail I think will always be filled in now by a reader. At least a reader of a site like Baseball Prospectus or Fangraphs. Right. And so I would rather and, – and this just puts a greater editorial burden on us both as editors sort of helping to – guide writers when they're getting kind of uh, off kilter potentially and and as writers to do a little bit more or a lot more than well here's the you know here's the here's what the dollar poor analysis is right you have to do more than that but i do think that there are i think that there is explanatory benefit to talking about how teams and front offices in particular, right, divorced from whatever their ownership is maybe wanting to do from a budget perspective, how they think about these things. And so I guess I would rather have there be critical engagement rather than sort of readers filling in what they think they know based on the fact that they're smart readers who are sort of well 
have been inculcated with with this stuff. So I'm I this is one of my pet subjects, you know, basically league adjustment because I I think people are really actually very bad people being, you know, everyone as a collective mass yeah. are really bad at translating across eras and across environments. And I think people get stuck on what was true. So it makes me wonder is the solution then, if if we feel that it's morally acceptable, and I will leave that condition up <laughs> to continue talking about it, sure. do we need to league adjust our salaries? Do we need to have an index stat that says, compared to other players of that position or sure. other players in that point in their aging curve, should we, instead of talking about it in terms of dollars, just talk about it on a, on a hundred scale? It's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's not. I think you have to have some kind of I think you have to talk about the monetary side of it because it does factor into the way the teams construct rosters. Now, it then is on us to critically engage like what the true spending capacity is, right? Because you and I and everyone knows that like, you know, if if it does us- it though does it though cuz now we're we're sit- we're sitting in this situation where Manny Machado's out there and we know, you know, like Gasmani Gr- let's take Gasmani Grandel. Sure. He signs and you find out what the, the, the numbers are and you my, I don't know your reaction. My reaction is how did 29 teams not beat this? Right. And if we don't, like I personally just don't get it. Like to the point sure. where I don't know if I'm capable of analysis because I, I don't feel like I can have my feet in this kind of economic environment using the, the language we ordinarily use. Right. It, I, I don't understand how teams are building their rosters right now because they don't, seem to be operating under the same behavioral patterns that they have for literally ever. And it's weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fair. I think that it is, uh, I think that we are at a point where that conversation is only going to get harder. And I don't want our solution to be throwing our hands up at the, like the heft of that difficulty, which isn't, I don't think what you're really suggesting, but um you know, I think that it is just maybe on us, you and me in particular. We 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 bear such a burden, Patrick. <laughs> two of us to c- help people come up with new language to talk about it in a way that's frank and uh, probably quite a bit more critical of the teams themselves than we maybe historically have been either inclined to do or comfortable doing. It's going to be so unpleasant. <laughs> Well, yes and no. I mean, it's it's something new to talk about. That's true. So that's that's nice. I mean, we, you know, we'll, we can look at things in a new way. I'm like, that's an article idea. Never yeah, said about an article idea. Yeah, no, I think that part of it is interesting. I I I shudder at the discourse around it, but it's it's an important and necessary discourse. So like, I'll get over it. But it's just uh, you know, we we so often litigate these things uh, on Twitter. And that's a bad place to engage with nuance. So that part of it concerns me. But I think that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to continue to come up with new ways to talk about this stuff because I think you're right that we we've always made an assumption that the eventual goal of baseball teams is to win. Maybe not right now. I, you know, we've been comfortable with the not right now part for quite a while. But that eventually, what they want to do is be like, well, I want a World Series. I brought a World Series to Seattle. You know, we just assume that someone really wants to say that and and means it in a way that is, you know, not quite the same as our own fandom for the game, but is sort of in the in the neighborhood of that. And I don't know that we can necessarily just go with that assumption anymore. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think from a historical perspective, I, I kind of wonder if we have just enjoyed the end of a golden age. Because prior to Bill James and prior to some the advanced movement of, of sabermetrics, there were lots of teams that didn't try to win. Right. Uh, you look at the Cubs right. for, you know, like, 60 years the cubs were the cubs had their alternate revenue stream and they didn't need to win to sell tickets so they generally didn't try that hard right and it worked for them and so they were kind of that exception to baseball all the way through the 70s into the 80s and finally we had the tools to call them on it right and they had to for a while pretend yeah or at least yeah pretend to the point where they actually kind of started to get better at it and then they they, won a world series (laughs) yeah exactly well yeah eventually whoops so i kind of wonder if like we got lucky right for a decade where everybody did feel and and at least they felt like compelled to rebuild you know in a in a sensical way when they weren't trying to win and maybe we're kind of out of luck now until the climate changes or some sort of economic force pushes in on it. It's fine if it's a team, right? If you have one team that's just like got a bunch of bums in ownership, right? Which, you know, it's not fun for fans of that team, but for other people is its own kind of entertainment, right? If you have one team like that, that's fine. Like the the baseball ecosystem can survive one team like that or, or five teams like that, but we have a lot more than five at the moment that are just whether because their ownership group is sort of satisfied with the profit margin that they're able to extract or because they're maybe they do want to win in a way that's very sincere, but they're sort of off cycle from a competitive window perspective or what have you, just not engaged with being competitive right now. And when you have, you know, when you have enough teams in the AL Central that aren't going to be competitive, it reduces incentives for even good teams to like just pony up and freaking sign AJ Pollock already. Like, why is AJ Pollock not on the Cleveland Indians? It's crazy. Well, it's because nobody else is going to sign it. Exactly. It's it's another collective action problem. And also because, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's on that team. They're going to win the Central, like barring catastrophe. They're going to win the Central. And they will have achieved that goal. And they can credibly say, you know, we're, we're AL Central champions. And that's, do they get to hang a banner? You know, their moms will be proud. But like, you know, you look at that Cleveland team and you're like, well have fun getting bounced in the first round of the playoffs, right? So it, it it reduces not only the number of competitive teams, but it reduces the competitiveness of many of those teams, not all of them, right? You, you know, you of course have like the flip side of the AL Central and the NL Central where you, you know, you have the, the Cubs and the Brewers and the Cardinals and potentially the Reds, which I still don't believe to be true. No, but like- Nor but, should you. But potentially the Reds. I mean, the Reds are trying- yeah. They're trying. The Reds are, are trying to win baseball games. And that makes them not unique, but like commendable. It makes them behind. It makes them behind the, right. behind the times in the same way they've been right. behind the times. But now, now because everyone else is lapped backwards, they're behind the times ahead. It's great. Right. And so then you just end up in this place where like you have a sport that from a pure competition perspective, not competition amongst teams, but in terms of the human persons who are on the field doing baseball, has literally never been better than it is right now. And then that is completely, not completely, but largely decoupled from the broader competitive landscape. So you're just like, what is this? 
And I love it so much, but like, what is this? <laughs> well, and tying back to the golden age, I think one of the things that made the golden age so golden is that once this knowledge bubbled up to the surface, everybody felt like they could get their piece of it. You right. know, all these teams felt they had their competitive advantage and they could figure out how they were going to get ahead. And everybody had something somebody else didn't, or at least an idea. And now it's completely homogenized. And even the Mets have a have a analysis department, and or are hiring one. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I think the only solution in my mind is that baseball needs to be more complicated. I, <laughs> I honestly, I don't know if it needs to be the product on the field or a change in the rules. I haven't obviously given this nearly enough thought, but we need a new thing to make everybody less certain. Because right. the problem right now is every team knows exactly what they are. Right. And the great thing about baseball is theoretically that everybody has a chance. And we need to get to a point again where there is enough mystery in some element of the game that we don't all kind of already know what the story is going to be. including And for us as fans, we've had that for a while now. And, and it's still exciting because it's still fun to watch the players play. Right. But... For the teams themselves, we need the teams to be in the dark a little more about how the season's going to look. Yeah. So we should make that happen in some brilliant and unforetold way. I wonder if... I have not thought this through either. I just wonder if... I wonder if baseball needs a regulator. And the commissioner's office is supposed to be that in some ways, but the commissioner is, first and foremost, not only a steward of the game, but also a friend a pal to ownership, shall we say? An employee? That? An employee of ownership, <laughs> um, if you want to be technical. Yeah. So I just wonder if, um, you know, maybe, wow, what a what a meg solution. I guess it's an unusual meg solution to turn to something as stodgy as a regulator rather than being like, I don't know, make their, make their hats shiny. I mean, there's a political science way to do it. I, yeah. some, of the, some of the commissioners have done a better job of, fulfilling that part of the role than others right. obviously you know giamatti legitimately seemed to be able to look ahead at things obviously uh, landis was there literally to save the owners from themselves and i think that's what you need out of commissioner more than anything right. else is somebody who will look at the owners and look at what they're doing and say i understand why every single thing you're doing is rational and you're making everything worse by doing it all at the same time right and and, and you know i i joked in in the last episode of this podcast i joked with craig edwards that i i was sort of shocked that they didn't that no owner had the foresight to say, like, a work stoppage is going to be bad for everyone. It's bad for us, even if it might be worse for players, from a monetary perspective at least. So I'm just going to bite the bullet and pony up $300 million for, you know, a generational talent. What a burden. Just so that we can start to, you know, try to assuage the concerns of labor a little bit. And, you know, I'm mostly joking about that, but I'm I'm kind of not – you know, yeah. it's it's a I think there is an assumption underlying the decision making in front offices, much of which is very rational. And, and I will say much of which is is mandated by ownership. Right. Like it's not as if, you know, if ownership is unwilling to spend beyond a certain limit that like a general manager can go out and say, like, well, sorry, I signed a guy for three hundred million dollars. Well, and strikes hurt everyone. And theoretically, right. this is your, you know, to go to another political topic, this is your DEFCON, right? Right. You, you want to get as close to one without reaching one. Right. And ordinarily, 
that would be the rule is that you take exactly as much as you can get while avoiding a strike. But I, I just wonder if the owner's position is not so strong that even after a strike, they still come out ahead. Right. right. Or at least that they feel that way. They feel so invincible. Yes. I think that regardless of whether or not they are correct in their assumption, there is an assumption being made that they have a very precise and real handle on where where the line is, you know, the limit that they can approach while avoiding a strike but still extracting as much money from the game as humanly possible. And I don't know I don't know if their assessment of where that line is is accurate or not. And I guess we're gonna find out. But yeah, I don't I don't even know if mine is. I mean there's well, also right. that chance that that you have the percentage versus the payoff of you know what? How much does the game hurt, and how much do profits hurt if there's a strike? How much more profit do you get if you actually literally break the union? What if you have a strike right. and they fold in two weeks? That's way a way better outcome for the owners than not having the strike, right? Even with a small one, right? Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to tell them not to, even though literally we're asking somebody to hire somebody to tell them not to because right. you know the fans, of course, are you know we're just out there helpless. Yes. Yeah. We are no longer, the fans are no longer tied to the success of their teams. We no longer have ticket sales to show any kind of power over what the teams do. Right. And they're just going to find out. I wonder if the solution from a fan perspective in terms of, well, I mean, assuming that we were to want to rejigger fan loyalties to be more about individual players and less about teams i wonder assuming we wanted to do that i wonder if the solution is for everyone to just be a mariners fan especially if there was a strike and then just everybody just was a mariners fan and it would be like we'd have recaps of nothing happening it would just be, <laughs> it'd be like, like all, everyone. it's like everything i wrote in 2015 <laughs> it, it really is the baseball equivalent of everyone deciding to watch the bachelor all at the same time <laughs> which which we'll we did. All sacrifice, we'll all sacrifice ourselves to this trashy television show just so we can have this feeling of community while doing it. Well, and I mean, what I mean when I say that is that, like, and I don't, I, you tell me if your feelings toward baseball fandom were the same as mine, but like, I don't know how if you are a Mariners fan, you escaped the like mid 2000s, the 2010s Mariners, feeling like your loyalty lay more with the the laundry than the people wearing it, right? Like, I don't think you can watch those teams and watch, you know, Felix pitching for those teams and then be like, yeah, ownership, man. Yeah, but who besides Felix? <laughs> because it's well, it's real hard to to feel that affinity for the players when the players are Jeremy Reed. Uh, that's <laughs> fair. Cost. I mean, like, I've, I found my way to some very um, strange obsessions and realized those might not be, you know, universal, but I think you can find your way, right? Like, who's the best, you know, how much do Reds fans love Joey Votto? I actually don't know the answer to that question. I get very mixed reviews. Well, <laughs> I don't really hear a lot from Reds fans, just generally. I, I hear more from them now because several of the uh, very good and diligent copy editors who help out over at the Hardball Times are Reds fans, at least one. So, you know, I hear more about the Reds in that respect. But, you know, like Joey Votto, people love Joey Votto, right? Reds fans love Joey Votto. They're getting better at it with practice. Right. He's a bad example. Felix is a better example. But so, like, this is the thing. It's like you watched 2014 Felix. And I I, I said this in a chat this week because a, f- a fan was asking, you know, I think in a – in a good faith way, how should I 
feel about this. I don't want to side with ownership, but I get very tired of multimillionaire athletes sort of whining about not being paid more, which I think is, you know, a sentiment that is pretty pervasive among casual fans or sort of, I don't know that actually the divide is really around sabermetrics on that score, but I think many fans feel that way. And what I said was like, I remember watching like peak Felix, 2014 Felix throwing a changeup was like a physical sensation. Like I felt that pitch in like the tips of my fingers and behind my eyeballs. I was like, wow. Or it's like the first time any of us saw, I mean, he has turned out to be a complicated character, but like the first time any of us saw Araldis Chapman throw that fastball, right? The first time you saw Giancarlo Stanton hit a home run, that is a physical sensation, or it was for me. Uh, if it is not for you, that doesn't make you a less good fan. It just probably means you have better boundaries about entertainment than I do. But, you know, what owner has ever done that? Yeah. Uh, the answer is no. No, I, I don't. Sir. And and the reason <laughs> is that I don't dream. I am I am not a visual person. And I try to paint with words the pictures of baseball as much as I can. But I don't get that same viscerality of athletics being performed. Although you literally paint. Well, I mean, only like well it's it's not worth explaining um <laughs> but for me it for me it was all gallows humor because sure as a political scientist the how we dealt with the mariners was more interesting than anything the mariners actually did well it's the only i mean it's that that bad team is the reason that i ended up writing about baseball and i think doing it to to some amount of success because you have to work so much harder but there's so much to say about failure Failure is so much more interesting than, like, extreme success. It's like, yeah, this guy's really good. It's amazing that Mike Trout is as fertile a subject for baseball writers as he is. He should he should be really hard to write about in a good, compelling way. Meg, I've never in my life written an article about Mike Trout. I wrote about Mike Trout um, hypothetically eating too much meat and whether that would make him a less good baseball player. That's still better. I... <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've even written a a short relief post about Mike Trout. I don't think I've ever written anything about Mike Trout because he doesn't need it. Well, that's a that's a very fair point. That's a very fair point. I think I also in that piece wrote about how many coins Mike Trout could keep in his pants pockets before he was a less good fielder. It's really weird that like our reaction to the very best baseball player of our lifetime and perhaps any lifetime is often to say how could we make this person worse <laughs> well it's we are know, so broken <laughs> if, if you see if you see silly putty what you're going to want to do is stretch it out that's right? true i guess that's true but man we we do enjoy being like if we were to hobble mike trout terribly and take away all of his memory and pull him away from everything he's ever known or loved what would he be able to do on a baseball field then Huh? Obvious, obviously, what we need to do then is go the other route and just plant Mike Trout in a hypothetical world as a philosopher king and see how he handles, you know, total power. Sure. Does it ruin him? Does he just perform it with the same diligence and skill by which he plays baseball? I suppose the thing that I think about with Mike Trout most often is whether or not he's a reliable narrator, because... I don't know if he is a person, you know, clearly I don't know him as a human person. I don't know if he is is prone to being sort of like a trickster. But I sometimes wonder if Mike Trout is at all times only playing 80%. Like 
So, yeah, God, I'm going to use a kids' movie reference. So we're talking about basically Dash finishing second. Yes. In The Incredibles. Yes. But, Just like that. But Barry Bonds was that. <laughs> he went right. ahead and won the race. I mean, that's fair. So, like, <laughs> but I just wonder, like, is he, what if one day he's like, ha ha, I've been fooling you all along, and now I shall be 100% Mike Trout, and then we all realize, like, oh, he was just fibbing the whole time. Like, maybe he had one friend who he didn't want to make feel worse. I feel like I feel like the real result of this was Luke Appling when he hit that home run as a seventy-five-year-old in the <laughs> old-timers game. <laughs> we got one glimpse. Oh, it's like what the eight hundred home run hitting Luke Appling. Yeah, it's just like oh, because we're on the aging curve right now. Right, it's like oh yeah, right. He can do that. <laughs> he can. He can still do that. Uh, Patrick, what editor talk do you want to do? We were going to do some editor talk. Yeah, it's then hard. Did, it's hard to do editor talk. Then I talked um, about Mike Trout for ten minutes, as is my want. Well, that's fine. Everybody's. It, no one is immune except me. I, <laughs> I apparently have the, the the ability to resist the charms. What's your pet peeve as an editor, Nick? Oh God. Um, <laughs> allow me to talk about my pet peeves as an editor on Fangraphs Audio podcast, listened to by Fangraphs writers. Think of it as a teachable moment. None of whom make these mistakes. All of whom are perfect. Delightful angels. No. Uh, now, hold on, hold on. Let's 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 put it out here. You can have a pet peeve that is not correct. You know, my pet peeve is entirely stylistic and not you know actually better writing. What is so, yours? Wait, no, I asked you first. Oh God. Um, what's my pet peeve? You know, I worry that we have stopped teaching children when to use that and which. I'm terrible at that. I'm really bad. <laughs> But it's not hard, though. Well, yeah, it's not hard if you remember. Right. You I mean, like, I, I always mess up, I, not always, but I often mess up hyphenation. So, like, you know, we all have our, our failings as humans. That in which is corrected a lot. You know, Major League Baseball should only be capitalized, you know, capital M, capital L, capital B, if you're actually talking about the business entity that is Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball is not a stand-in capitalized for baseball and so i fix that a lot fix that a lot i fix that a lot i have for a long time that's not something that's uh specific to any particular writer it's just like every every writer no matter the outlet that i have ever edited makes that mistake probably at least once you've edited my work meg it's fine i accept it yeah yeah i don't know what what do i get you know, one, you know, this is an actual pet peeve because the rule on this is really open to interpretation. And so I will admit that this is a stylistic concern of mine and that the people who do something different are not necessarily making a mistake, even though I don't like it. I wish that we were more uh, careful about that and who. I wish that we were better about using who when describing, you know, obvious people. The player who did this, the designated hitter who hit a home run. Corporations. Right. You know, we can use that to describe teams because teams are not people. They are peopled by people, but they are not themselves people. But I I wish that we were more consistent about that. And I realize that I am fighting a losing battle because not only other writers, other editors, other publications are just seemingly less concerned with that as a thing. But I think that uh, the Supreme Court, 
Right. Also them. (laughs) You know, in a moment when we are really, as an industry, grappling with like the humanity of baseball players, (laughs) even as baseball tries very, very hard to treat especially minor leaguers as, as just terribly as possible, making all sorts of friends at the league office today. I wish that we were just better about saying players who do this rather than players that do that because they're they're not they're not things they're people who do stuff it's a fair one so i don't think think you're gonna upset anybody who's gonna be like i really need to call my people that well and it's also not a strict (laughs) grammar rule really i mean like if you it's it's not so that is a stylistic preference of mine that people i don't know how how often Uh, members of our staff, for instance, go back and and read work that they've already published. But if they did, they might notice that I, at least if I'm fully caffeinated and paying good attention, will often, excuse me, go through and make that change for them. What's yours? So I don't know if pet peeve is really the right description for this, but uh, I talked earlier about how I'm not visual and how I don't see anything. Mm. And for when I edit, I'm actually extremely audio. And I tend to, I don't literally read out loud, but I internally read out loud what I'm reading. And so the way that sentences sound to me are very important. Yes. So there are certain things that are related to that that drive me crazy. Yes. Uh, one of which is repetition of words. Yes. If somebody uses the same word twice in two sentences, like yes. it better you better be like fist slamming on table level of emphasis. Doing a thing. <laughs> and even if you even if you're doing a thing, I still probably am gonna hate it. Like I, I can't stand repetition. You you have, I will say for the better, cut repetition from my work when I'm doing it on purpose and I think about it every time I write without you reading it now. Let us, you and I Present a united front. The best thing that a writer can do, any writer, this is not a criticism of any in particular writer, but any writer is to read their work out loud. Yes. You catch so much stuff. And really the only thing that you mess up is that you add too many commas when you read your work out loud. But that's a lot easier to fix. Yeah. And I'm not even sure. I, I'm on the comma spectrum. I'm, I lean towards more than less anyway. Yeah, I'm pretty. But ta- if, if I'm if I'm reading it and I pause, then I'm I'm cool with the comma. Sure. Being there. Everyone should read their stuff out loud. So the other one related is uh, short paragraphs. Mm. I one sentence paragraphs are like the, basically to me. It, I always think of somebody behind a lectern in front of six hundred <laughs> students, and they say something and they wait, like look how important this sentence was. Take it in. And I'm like, you, you're, if you have a, I mean, paragraphs are supposed to be ideas, right? right? Every paragraph is supposed to be formulated around a concept. And if you have a concept that is only one sentence, then there's probably six more sentences to say, or you could have worked it into a different concept. <laughs> like, I, it just, it's, it's very beat writery. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, personally, my personal tastes run away from journalism as a writing style. Mm-hmm. I understand when it's important. I'm glad I don't write or edit in a seat in a place where we do it that way. But man, it just, I think of, I think of the Seattle Times when I was a kid and every self-important, you know, beat writer from the 70s and 80s that I will not name. It just, every time. Who you will not time. name. <laughs> who I can't yeah, there we go I'm definitely not going to be able to get it when I'm doing it's it out okay. loud <laughs> I'm uh, just being a pest 
so so yeah those those are the big ones for me trying to think what else and then of course the the big one my other obviously because i've been managing shortly for two years now two years we're real close to the anniversary feels longer than that (laughs) some nights it it does um (laughs) but everything could be shorter and yeah everything everything could be shorter for multiple reasons i think one reason is that people's time on this earth is finite and you should respect it and if you can say something in 500 words instead of 800 words you should say it in 500 words even if you get paid for an 800 word article i don't uh, you know things every every idea has a length that the author needs to find and sometimes you know sometimes i'll get 400 word articles and they'll they really are 1400 word articles and you have to send it back and say no you know write the rest of this great you know don't don't fit this don't jam this into this particular box but more often than not it's the 1400 word article that probably could be 400 and so there's the respecting of time the other thing is that the shorter something is it's it's, writing shorter is like singing softly Mm -hmm. uh, in that it's it seems easier but it's actually much harder to sing softly than it is to sing loud sure and when you cut things out you're you're basically like i will get to a point sometimes where i'll cut things out just to take out the ground and force the reader to jump i'll make make leaps from one idea to the next because that's much more interesting and much more dizzying as a reader to be like to have to do a little of your own work to be creative and filling in the gaps of something than it is to just be told information and just not have to think and just kind of regurgitate it in your own brain. Sure. So yeah, less text, the better. You should write the full amount first. You know, don't, don't write your first draft thinking this is going to be 300 words, but once you get that first draft, you know, see, see exactly how much you could, how much fat you could cut out of it. Cause it's probably more. Yeah. 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 <sighs> Editing's great, though. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, um, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining about my job. I like my job very much. I find my job very rewarding. I get to work with smart people who do very good work that I'm very proud of. So, you know, I'm not complaining. But editing is, at times, an exercise in being like, didn't I fix this once before? <laughs> It's hard. Editing is really hard and it's thankless. And, you know, when you when it's going great, you feel like the conductor of an orchestra and you, you know, you get to hear this beautiful music from this perspective. And then the nice thing is that when you're when you're an editor and you have a real bad day, yeah. Usually what it just means is that you didn't make anything worse. <laughs> you know, sure. you may not have fixed everything, you may not have polished it as beautifully as you could, but you probably didn't you probably didn't screw it up unless you're you're really upset about something. Right. And, you know, you can, you can take solace in that. Yeah. It's, Especially uh, when you're doing it at 11 at night, you know? Yeah. 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 That doesn't happen much anymore for me. 11 it's at gonna night. Happen, it's going to happen to me right after we get off the call. <laughs> um, well, that is probably as good a reason as any, especially because we're coming up on an hour, to maybe call it. I want to know if you have anything you want to plug. I know the answer, but I think you should do it anyway because it makes you uncomfortable and you should improve in this aspect of your job. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is that, you know, I don't I don't do a lot of podcasts and I, I kind of hate them. And every time I get invited to do a podcast, I will practice over and over again in the car. Like every commute I have, I'm like, okay, I'm going to practice all the things that I might get asked because I get so nervous. And what I never practice is pitching, you know, is pitching literally anything. Right. <laughs> and, 
that's because I'm an idiot. And I know this, and I have known this for like the last four podcasts I've done, and I still never practice. I never do any of it. But anyway, you should buy the Baseball Prospectus 2019 annual on bookshelves soon. It is 2,200 uh, capsules and 35 essays. Wow. Yeah, 30, 35, 36, including uh, one Meg Rowley yeah. and uh, also one Cheryl Ring. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who wrote an excellent essay about... Uh, what it might be like when we have the first woman baseball player and whether we already do, maybe. Unsurprising that her essay would be fantastic because yes. Cheryl is fantastic. Oh, it was great. Uh, we also have uh, one uh, Nick Offerman. I cannot believe the- you gave Cheryl and I billing a- above Nick Offerman. That is very <laughs> generous and, gotta, and undeserved. Punch. <laughs> undeserved, even though Cheryl is wonderful. And I oh. wrote some of my essay on a tractor. <laughs> yeah, Nick Offerman wrote an essay for it. He wrote the Cubs essay, and it's great. Like I, I can't I, believe it. What a shock! I know, I know. <laughs> I was, I was a little nervous, and uh, that it's a wonderful thing. So yeah, like it, it's great. The book's great. It's great every year. There's lots of insight. There's lots of good writing, and it's useful for playing the uh, annual drinking game. Which yes, you know, which everyone should do, but they should make sure to eat lunch. Before they do it, and obviously not consume malt beverages if they do not want to, but it is a fun thing to do with your friends. And don't play with Brendan Glowski because he, he knows Encyclopedic all. knowledge. <laughs> we haven't, the book is not out yet, and he knows three quarters of it already. It's, yeah. It's amazing. I am very bad at the annual drinking game, which is like in a way that I, I truly don't feel reflects my knowledge level about baseball, but I'm just very bad at it. We should probably explain what it is. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, the the annual drinking game. Well, you go ahead. It is your okay. book after all. So, so basically what we do, and I, I at this point, I can't remember who did it first, but props to you. I think I can't remember if it was the Phillies podcast or Matt's podcast. but A sad team podcast. Yeah. And uh, what you do is you take a comment from the annual at random, and you strip out all of the references to names and teams and divisions. And you read the comment. And then the other person has to try and guess who that player is based on the information. And it's fun. It's great. And it, it's fun, you know, it's fun regardless of whether or not you are using it to perhaps make bad decisions related to how much you're drinking or if you are just like having a soda. Because it's just like a very fun thing to do with friends. So I encourage people to do that. Patrick, people can also read writing that you've done or edited at Baseball Prospectus. Indeed. And uh, also Short Relief, which is our not-quite-not-graphs. Not-graphs with uh, a little calmer, a little more heartfelt, a little bit uh, so without, peaceful. So without Dane is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, pretty much without Dane, without Carson. <laughs> but it's uh, Carson. we have a, a bunch of great writers, including at one time, one Meg Rowley. Yeah. And uh, it's great, and I think more people should read it because uh, it's exactly what I want to be on the internet, and so I made it. I enjoy it every single day. It is delightful. It is part of my morning reading pretty much every day. So I recommend it also. Uh, And then people can find you on Twitter. Yes, at my last name backwards. Yep. Which is technically pronounced Uquebin. Which is very confusing to people. They can look it up. Yeah. That has been Patrick Dubuque, who is the director of editorial content. Indeed. Yeah. Oh, it's so fancy. Such a fancy title. I was worried <laughs> I would get it It is painfully it fancy. I feel a little bad about it, but no. it is the official title. It is very well deserved. So Patrick Dubuque, Director of Editorial Content for Baseball Prospectus. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Meg.